all the way to Romans 15, verse 13. That is a large chunk of scripture, especially in the book of Romans, where every word weighs a pound. And so I know it's a, uh, we're our, it's, a, it's a large text to deal with, and we're certainly going to leave a fair amount of meat on the bone uh, when handling such a large text. But there's a reason for it, and that is that really this is one whole unit from chapter 14, verse 1, all the way to chapter 15, verse 13, is one unit of thought that, that really deals with these disputable matters. And so we looked at part of it last week already, and, uh, and so we're going to cover the, the rest of that unit of thought uh, this morning. And before I read, I invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word. Let's pray together. Lord God, I pray that as you come together under your word this morning that you would speak to us. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would lead us as believers, as individuals, and as a church, as the body of Christ, and as a local congregation, O oh Lord that you would lead us to a place of unity, that you'd work within us according to your spirit and your word, Lord, a deep and abiding unity in Christ. And where there are differences and divisions and dissensions among us, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would heal them, and I pray that you give us wisdom and discernment to know how to navigate them faithfully. So speak to us, O Lord, through your word this morning. And may it be for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Starting at Romans 14, verse 13. So in the previous section, Paul was uh, <clears throat> giving instructions about the weak and the strong and about uh, disputable matters and how we are to handle those faithfully. And it continues then in verse 13 by saying, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. 
We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations, in him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus prayed for us as believers. And the main theme of his prayer, as recorded in John 17, was unity. His desire for the church, and think about this for a moment, his desire for the church in the moments before he goes to the, the darkest hour of his life, in the moments before he dies on a cross, his desire is for the church to be one. He prayed to his father, in, as recorded in John 17, I pray for those who, who will believe in me, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Does the world know that God sent Jesus and has loved us as the Father has loved the Son? Do they know that by seeing this deep and abiding and unworldly-like unity in the life of the church? The Apostle Paul echoes this desire for unity in our text this morning. And as we saw last week, Paul has been addressing this, this, this issue, this, this topic of disputable matters, which are those, those non-essential matters in the life of the church. These are matters of conscience on which believe, different believers will have different opinions and different standards of conscience. And Paul's whole aim in addressing this topic is to bring unity in the church. He says this in chapter 15, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had for this purpose, so that with one mind and one, with one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's goal. This is his desire. 
a deep and abiding unity that is grounded in Christ for the glory of God. And that is what he wants to see flourish in the church at Rome. And the problem that was driving this desire for unity was division and dissension between two groups in the church. We uh, briefly mentioned them last time, but I'll, I'll give them to you again. So Paul called one group the weak. And they were mainly Jewish Christians, uh, not entirely, but mainly Jewish Christians, and their, their consciences compelled them to observe Jewish food laws and holy days. And Paul called the other group the strong. And these were mainly Gentile Christians, though again, not exclusively because Paul himself numbered himself among the strong, and he himself was, in fact, a Jewish Christian. But they were, by and large, for the most part, mainly Gentile Christians, and they... Uh, they had more freedom of conscience than the weak. They, they understood that their freedom in Christ did not obligate them to, to be bound by food laws or holy days. And the problem in the church at Rome is that the, the disagreements between these two groups of people were, were boiling over into conflict and dissension. The strong were prone to a spirit of arrogance, uh, flaunting their freedom and, and treating the weak with contempt. Like, how can you still be stuck in those old Jewish practices? How can you not be at a greater place in your Christian walk than that? And they were looking down on them with, with arrogance and contempt. They looked down on them for their legalistic tendencies. But then on the other hand, the weak were prone to a spirit of judgmentalism, and they looked down on the strong for their, what they saw as sort of their, their lawlessness and their, their libertine kind of ways. How can you be so loose and how can you be so, 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 you know, free with the things that you do? And though the specific issues are different, we struggle with the same problem. We have disagreements within our own body here at Covenant that have boiled over into conflict and at times, animosity and, and dissension. We have groups within the church with the same tendencies towards arrogance on one hand and judgmentalism on the other. And what we desperately need is the same thing that the church in Rome needed. In fact, I think that it's kind of providential that God has brought us to this place in Romans at, at this place. That this would be one of the things, as I have only maybe five Sundays or so left, this would be one of the things that I would want to impart to you as a church as, as I prepare for me leaving and another pastor coming and, and as I want to leave covenant in a really healthy, strong, good place, one of the things that, that I would be compelled to, to speak to you about would be unity. And especially unity in the context or unity in, with, with, with the differences of opinions on some of the lesser, minor, more non-essential kinds of issues. And so how providential is it that God has brought us to Romans? I could not have mapped us out in my own mind uh, at this stage in the life of our church. We desperately need the same thing that the church in Rome needed. We need a deep and abiding unity in Christ. Which, by the way, was, has been, I think, one of the great strengths of Covenant Church for years and years. Uh, looking back, and, you know, I've been here almost 18 years now, and for the vast majority of that time, we have done really well at, at maintaining unity across a fairly wide range of backgrounds and perspectives and opinions, and, and, and it's been a beautiful thing. And one of the things that, that, I, that I celebrate about my time here at Covenant, and, and I certainly believe 
that it's uh, within reach to, to get back to that point, and I believe God will, will do that work in us. So the question before us this morning is, is how, do we, how do we get there? How do we do that? How do we, how do we attain or live out that unity in Christ? How do we live in unity specifically while holding different opinions on disputable matters? That's the, the question before us this morning. And it's an answer to that question that Paul writes this text. So we need to hear what Paul says and, and, and put it into practice. If there's any text that is relevant, I mean, they're all relevant, but if there's anyone that is particularly and, and poignantly relevant for, for us right now, it would be this text. I mean, we can draw from this text, I believe, four principles about how to live in unity while disagreeing on disputable matters. So we'll walk through them together. The first principle is this. Do not cause fellow believers to stumble. Paul says, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Now, Paul is talking primarily here, as he is throughout much of this, this whole section, he's talking primarily to the strong, to those who have more or, or greater freedom of conscience in their Christian walk. And he's telling the strong not to, to exercise their freedom in a way that might cause others to violate their own conscience. So he says, he says this, I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself, but if, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Now, now Paul is saying that, that it is theologically correct Based on the teaching of Jesus himself, Paul is probably remembering or drawing on what Jesus himself said, that it's not what, what comes into you that makes you unclean. It's the uncleanness isn't a matter of the heart. Jesus was saying it's not about you know, foods to eat and things like that. Get, get, get that. We're not bound by those things anymore. So Paul's theology is based on the teaching of Jesus himself. And he's saying that based on that teaching, it is right to conclude that all foods are clean. We're no, we're no longer bound by old covenant food laws. We're free to eat what we want. But, but there are some, Paul says, who have not yet come to this understanding. That they don't have freedom of conscience in the area of food. And, and their consciences then still bind them in these areas. And it is a sin to go against your own conscience, even if your conscience is misinformed. That, that's an important principle. It's, imp it's a sin to go against your own conscience, even if your own conscience is misinformed. And so if you exercise your freedom in a way that causes someone else to violate their own conscience, then you are causing them to stumble and to sin. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't do anything that would cause others to stumble. All, he, says, he says all food is clean, but it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. Now, the basic idea here is really pretty straightforward. And Paul is saying, uh, again, especially to the strong, to make allowances for those with weaker consciences. Right? Make, make sacrifices for them. Give a little for them. Yeah, yes, you do have the freedom, and you're right to, to understand that you have that freedom of conscience, but for the sake of those who are weaker, make allowances, make sacrifices, give yourself on behalf of them. Instead of 
looking down on them with arrogance and contempt. Bear with them and give up some of your own freedoms for them. Paul really makes the same point, in a, but putting it in a, in a positive spin in verse 19, where he says this, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Let us do whatever we can to, to build each other up, to, to strengthen each other in our faith, to, to help each other grow toward maturity in Christ. That's what, we're, that, that's what the body of Christ is supposed to be about, helping each other, being equipped to help each other grow in our maturity toward Christ. And so things like arrogance and contempt and judgmentalism and criticism, do, they do just the opposite. They, they, they tear others down and they cause others to stumble. They, they don't allow others to grow in their faith towards maturity in Christ and they have no place in the body of Christ. Take care not to harm the spiritual lives of others. Do what you can to, to help them in their spiritual lives to help them grow, to help them come towards, grow towards maturity in Christ. Do not cause fellow believers to stumble. That's the first principle. The second principle is to maintain proper kingdom priorities. Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, don't get hung up on these relatively minor matters of conscience. Don't, don't let these differences of opinion overshadow the more important things. The kingdom of God is characterized by these astounding gifts of, of righteousness and peace and, and joy in the Holy Spirit and, and, and a hundred other things. What a tragic shame to, to miss these gifts because you are entrenched in, in squabbles and controversies over much lesser things. And Paul hints at the same idea in verse 15 when he says, do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. And I think that Paul, that's a striking, that's kind of a jolting statement. And I think that Paul wants us to see that, that the gross mismatch between the matter of eating certain foods and the matter of Christ's atoning death. So putting these things in the same sentence sort of puts it all into perspective, doesn't it? It's a small thing to give up, give up some freedom in eating in comparison to the one who gave up his life to die on a cross. And we see the same idea again in verse 20, where Paul says, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Again, let's, let's keep things in perspective. In the kingdom of God, there are far more important things than food and, and, and other disputable matters. So let's keep the main things the main things and not, as the church so often does, major in the minors. I read recently about, a, about two small uh, country churches. I don't know where they were, but they were out in some rural area. Two small country churches that were both dwindling in numbers and they got to the point where they were really no longer, hardly, barely, or maybe not really viable on their own anymore. And these two churches were fairly close by, and they were either part of the same denomination or at least a sister denomination, so they were very close theologically, and so the decision was made for the two churches to become one. And the plans for that merger were going along pretty well and pretty smoothly until the two churches discovered that they used, that they used different wording for the Lord's Prayer. 
So both churches agreed that they, would, they wanted the Lord's Prayer recited every Sunday during worship, but they disagreed on, on the proper wording that should be used. One church used the word trespasses. Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The other church used the word debtors. Lord, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so that, that, that disagreement escalated to the point of conflict and, and opposition and things got, got heated and, 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 and bitter and, and tensions were, were, were high and they could not resolve the difference. And so in the end, things got so heated that they decided not to join together at all. And what, just think about that for a moment. What, what a tragic display that is of, of losing sight of kingdom priorities. Right? We agree that, that about who God is and what, who Christ is and what Christ has done, that the only, he's the only means of salvation. And we agree about how to worship and what true worship is. We agree all these things, but we can't, we can't join together because we, we can't come to terms with wording of the Lord's Prayer. And both, by, by the way, of which... Both wordings are legitimate translations. What an ugly failure to be what Christ prayed his church would be. Let them be one father that they may be brought to complete unity. We, we vandalize the unity for which Christ prayed when we elevate the minor things and overlook the major things in the kingdom. And yet churches do this all the time. We hear all kinds of stories, much like that, that one of those two country churches, churches dividing and splitting over all kinds of things. I heard about a, read about a church that, that split because they couldn't agree on where the piano should go. How easy it would have been for the church in Rome to divide into, into the first church of meat eaters and the second church of abstainers. It would have been an easy thing to do. But Paul urged them to instead walk the way of unity. And, and one of the means of living in unity is to maintain proper perspective on kingdom priorities. Let's not let the lesser things tear us apart. Let's focus on the greater gifts that bind us together in the kingdom of God. Number three. The third principle is to discern the disputable matters. Now, this is really, this is kind of at the heart of it, isn't it? We, we have to discern what issues fall under the category of disputable matters or, or the non-essentials in the Christian walk. In, in their book, uh, Conscience, uh, Andrew Nacelli and J.D. Crowley describe what they call theological triage. And so they identify three levels of issues. And so first level issues are, are issues that are central and essential to the Christian faith. These are issues over which there can be no disagreement. To deny these things, these issues, is to place yourself outside the scope of faithful, biblical, orthodox Christianity. And so, for example, that God is one God in three persons, that Jesus is fully God and fully human, that Jesus died on the cross for hell-deserving sinners to rescue them from his wrath, and that he rose bodily from the dead. These are all examples of first-level, essential kinds of issues. Second level issues are issues that are important but not essential. So true believers can have different opinions on these things, but they are weighty enough 
that it's reasonable to create, to create boundaries between groups of Christians over these issues, like to, to create two separate churches or to create, you know, draw boundary lines of denominations over issues like these. Not, and not all, you know, you, you can maintain unity on some of them, but it's, it's re- at least reasonable to have boundary lines drawn over these issues. Things like views on, on baptism or church polity or the roles of men and women in the church and in the home are all examples of issues that I would say are important, uh, but not necessarily essential, not among the core doctrines of the gospel. Third level issues are the kinds of issues that Paul is talking about in our text. And these are issues that are non-essential. These are the disputable matters. These are what the reformers call the adiaphora, matters of conscience. And I gave some examples last week. Uh, Things like uh, Sabbath observance or Lord's Day observance, uh, alcohol consumption, uh, things like watching movies or engaging, how much do you engage in in different forms of worldly entertainment. Uh, Given the season that we're in, another example might be uh, participating participation uh, in, in Halloween, right? So these are, these are all areas where, where believers can have different opinions on these things or different standards of conscience in these areas, and most likely will have different standards of conscience. Now, let me just say that we, we see this, this idea, not spelled out so specifically, but we see this idea of triage in Paul himself, in, within the letter to the Romans, And here in Romans 14, Paul urges the Roman Christians to maintain unity over the issues of of food days and of food and holy days. So these are clearly in Paul's mind those those kinds of third level issues. But then a couple chapters later, in Romans 16 verse 17, Paul urges separation. He he doesn't call for unity, and and in Romans 16, it's a it's over a matter of doctrine. And so the net of unity that he casts only goes so far. This is what Paul says in Romans 16, verse 17. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. So doctrine matters. Things that are contrary to the gospel, things that are contrary to what Scripture clearly teaches, keep away from them, Paul says. Don't, don't, he doesn't say build bridges of unity with them. Do what you can to include them within the, the net of unity, he says, to separate from them. Keep away from them. And so in this case, Paul does not call for unity. He calls for separation. When it comes to doctrine, to first-level kinds of issues, to matters that are contrary to the teaching that they have learned, this is, this is one of those then first-level issues, and there can be no unity. If there's disagreement, then, then that's, there's, there's a clear line that separates you from biblical orthodox faith. Now, the problem, of course, is that not everyone agrees on where every issue lands in this theological triage. That, that's... That's really the, the, you know, where the rubber meets the road in this, this issue. What, what some consider third-level issues, others would consider second-level issues, maybe even first-level issues. What, what is weighty and important to one is not so weighty and important to another. And so we need wisdom and discernment to identify what are disputable matters. And we need to treat each other with charity and grace as we strive to sort it all out. Now, I kind of hinted at it last week. I, I brought up the issue of ministry shares. And, and so where, where, where in that triage would ministry shares lie? 
And my personal opinion is that it's probably, it's maybe a second level issue. It's not a first level issue, I don't believe. Um, but it, it, you could make the argument that either second or third, but I think there's enough weight and significance and importance to it that it might be a second level kind of issue. But again, this is where there, there's really no, no clear, Scripture doesn't say ministry shares is, uh, here's where it falls on that, on that process of triage. You see, ultimately, ultimately, there's no magical formula for sorting, that, for, for sorting that all out. And this is an area where fellow believers will have to discuss and listen to each other with patience and with open minds. But there are at least a couple of what I would call guiding propositions to help us discern the disputable matters. The first is that we discern according to Scripture. Uh, in, in all matters, Scripture must always be our guide. And so on matters where Scripture makes clear pronouncements, we must hold firmly without compromise. On matters where Scripture does not provide clear instruction, there is then more room for disagreement. The second proposition is that we discern with renewed minds. What Paul says here in Romans 14 flows out of what he said back in Romans 12, verse 2, where he said this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then he says you will be able to discern what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So it is through the, the renewing of our minds that, that we are able to discern the will of God in, in all matters, in, including where to draw lines of unity and where to draw lines of separation. The more time, which means the more time that we spend in worship and, and prayer and Bible study and Christian fellowship and listening to, to Christian music and Christian podcasts and all sorts of other God-centered, mind-shaping activities, the more that we do those things, the better we will be able to discern disputable matters in the life of the church. And then finally, the fourth and final principle is to follow the selflessness of Christ. And Paul ends his discussion, I think fittingly, he ends his discussion on disputable matters by pointing us to Christ. And he holds up the selflessness of Christ as a model for us to imitate in our walk with fellow believers. He says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Now, Paul is quoting here Psalm 69. Uh, in Psalm 69, the psalmist is, is crying out to God, saying that, those who, saying that those, uh, the insults of those who insult God have fallen on me. In other words, the psalmist is saying, I'm getting I'm mistreated, I'm getting, uh, you know, uh, uh, opposed or, or persecuted uh, because of my association with you. And, and, and Paul is using this psalm to show how Christ did not seek to please himself, but rather he took upon himself all of the God-directed hostility and rebellion of humanity. I mean, think, think about that for a moment. All of, the, all, of the, that, that, all of the hostility and rebellion of humanity towards God, Christ took upon himself. Like the, the epitome of selflessness. And Paul goes on to say, uh, may God give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that, G that Christ Jesus had. In other words, that attitude of selfless love. 
So that with one mind and one voice, in other words, all unified in Christ and demonstrating Christ-like qualities of selfless love toward one another within the body, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul makes this climactic statement where he says, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. In our dealings with others, we have to begin by looking to Christ. We, we remember. The starting point is to remember what Christ has done for us, which is exactly what we do in communion. We remember how, how Christ gave himself to accept us, who were by no stretch of the imagination worthy of acceptance. We remember how he emptied himself to reconcile us to God, to, to give hell-deserving sinners a place around the table in God's kingdom. And when we remember how he gave himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, it, it is, or at least it ought to be, a small thing to give ourselves to accept one another. It ought to be a small thing to say, I'm going to, I'm going to listen to my brother or sister instead of just condemning. Or I'm going to, I'm going to look at them and give them the benefit of the doubt with, and, and humble myself instead of looking down on them with arrogance. We see the same idea in Paul's letter to the Philippians where Paul says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And what, what a, to think about what a beautiful thing the church would be if we all did that. If we all, you know, we're humbling ourselves before Christ, seeing ourselves in light of what Christ has done for us, and, and out of that, treating each other with that same kind of selfless love and humility. And then just as Paul does here in Romans, so too in Philippians, Paul then goes from this call to, to, to humbling ourselves and, and one-mindedness, he then points us to Christ, and he says this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Christ, the eternally begotten Son, the very image of the invisible God, as Paul said to Colossians, the one who is in his very being and in his very essence, the, the essence of, of uh, the God of glory, who is fully God in his own being, became a servant and gave himself to the lowest possible position of humanity by dying on a cross. If the God of eternal glory could so humble himself for the sake of hell-deserving sinners, can we not humble ourselves to bear with one another and accept one another in the midst of our differences? We live in unity by following the selflessness of Christ. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus prayed for unity in the church. And the only way to attain the unity for which he prayed 
is for each of us to keep our hearts and our eyes fixed on him. For in our sinful nature, we are prone to judgment and contempt and arrogance and division. As the poem so aptly says, feel as I feel, think only as I think, eat what I eat and drink what I drink, look as I look, do always as I do, then and only then will I fellowship with you. That is the way of our sinful nature. Let us instead walk the way of Christ. Let us look to the cross and live in unity as those purchased and redeemed by his precious blood. Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, as we come before your throne in this time of silent prayer and preparation for communion, I pray, O oh Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit in us, you would search our hearts and show us, O oh Lord, those ways in which we have perhaps wrongly contributed to disunity and division among fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would by the power of your Holy Spirit in us. Lead us to the, to the, the things that Paul, been, Paul has been talking about. Lead us, O oh Lord, to that humility and the selflessness of Christ. Show us, Lord, in our own hearts, in our own minds, in our own lives, ways in which we need to grow in selflessness. Lord, hear our silent prayers as we prepare for communion this morning. Lord Jesus, forgive us for the ways that we have caused fellow believers to stumble. Forgive us, O oh Lord, for the ways that we have failed to maintain proper kingdom priorities, for the ways in which we have escalated the lesser things and neglected the greater things. And forgive us, Lord Jesus, for the ways that we have not followed in the way of the selflessness of Christ. And Father, I pray that as we come forward for communion this morning, that you would work within us, that you would nurture our faith, that you would help us to see that you would have hearts and minds and eyes that are fixed on Jesus that we might see what he has done for us and the, the depth and the width and the length of his self-giving love. And might we, O oh Lord, be moved 
to selflessness in our loving of fellow brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.